you know, th those are arguments uh, that, that aren't going to ultimately hold up to the fundamental challenge, which is that if you say it's a life at any point in the womb, well, then it's a life at every point in the womb. Welcome to the Stand Firm Podcast. I'm Nick Lannon of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky, and I'm here today with J.D. Koch of Christ Church Anglican in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina, for a couple more days. And uh, also here yeah. with lo longtime Stand Firmer Mark Marshall, who is joining us from York, England on kind of a spotty internet connection. We'll see what we can do about that. Matt Kennedy is still on vacation, hopefully to return soon. How are you guys doing today? Doing great. Yeah, great, Nick. Thanks. Well, I think we can dispense with the witty introductory small talk this week, <laughs> since it's a pretty momentous week in church and culture. Uh, Roe versus Wade has been overturned. Mark, that's why you're here. You have a long history with the pro-life movement. Uh, we wanted you to tell a little bit of your story on the show today. Why don't you introduce yourself and share with us about some of what it was like being on those front lines in the 80s when Roe was new, and then we can all react to its recent reversal. Yeah, well, I haven't been very active in the pro-life movement for some time, but back in the early 80s, I was. I went to, gosh, two or three or maybe even four marches for life, and uh, I was in North Carolina at the time going to Duke, and um, I was president of Duke Students for Life, so I, I was very active back then, and I was also a very serious political geek back then. So uh, I, I paid, you know, I attended the uh, the Human Life Bill hearings that Senator, the late Senator John East, uh, chaired. So um, and among other things, so yeah, I was pretty much right in the middle of it. Well, not in the middle of it, but I was very much involved in it. So how did you react? I'd be interested into the the. The assertion that somehow Christian people uh, were, were might, might actually be true, were taken back, taken aback by Roe, like sort of shocked into um, action or into interest all of a sudden in abortion, particularly evangelicals. You'll hear this. You'll hear this. I mean, no less than Al Mohler uh, referenced this uh, but last week that the Roman Catholics had um, sort of more robust preparation for their their um, argument against Roe, but that, that many evangelicals were finding themselves, particularly in the early 80s, sort of playing catch up to that. Is that, is that was that your experience or is that something you resonate with or, or, or what do you do about that? Absolutely. As a matter of fact, people tend to forget this. Uh, for example, so the Southern Baptists were before Roe v. Wade, they were actually somewhat pro, but the term wasn't used back then, but they were somewhat pro-choice. Of course, that was part of their bias back then was to stay out of politics and they really weren't that anti-abortion back then but then of course the uh the influence of Paige patterson and the moral majority uh and the conservative resurgence in the southern baptist convention made them very much pro-life but yeah the evangelicals very much played catch-up and they I, I think there, there's this bias not uh, among evangelicals for for decades back then of not being too involved in politics. And I think that that was partly because they saw the mainline denominations getting involved in politics and it was not good for mainline denominations. And so the evangelicals were a little slow on that. But I think, you know, the history that Roe v. Wade and other things happened in the 70s uh, and that 
kind of goaded evangelicals and, and fundamentalists to um, to get more involved. And of course, you all know the story of the moral majority for better or for worse. So, well, how did it come about that you were you you found yourself as president of? Uh, I guess it must have been a relatively new organization. Students for Life, as you call it, Students for Life, or was it Devils? Blue Devils for Life. Blue Devils It was Duke Students for Life. And to be honest, my memory is really fuzzy. I don't know how that, that happened. We weren't a huge organization, but we were very active. I mean, we had a, quite a, a, a number of students from, from Duke that went to the March for Life. And I remember running a, a well-attended seminar that had different standpoints well there was all pro-life standpoints but pro-life standpoints from different points of view including you know a, one one speaker who was decidedly left of center but as far as how i got to be president i don't remember <laughs> yeah you were the charismatic one um, I, I have a question it's more, and i'm sure that we'll talk about this more um one of the criticisms you constantly hear about pro-life Christians, especially now in the aftermath of the overturning of Roe, is that somehow we're only pro-birth, not pro-life. And I'm wondering if if that could have even been true in the very early stages of the pro-life movement when Roe was first ratified, if it was such a, a shocking thing that maybe even for a time, there was a time where you all were really not thinking about what might happen to these children after birth, but you were really only pro-birth. Would you even say that that was true then? I can't speak to the, to the 70s because I really didn't get involved in that until 1979 at the earliest. But I remember in the 1980s, including the early 1980s, there was a pregnancy support center in, uh, in Chapel Hill to, to serve the, the Durham-Chapel Hill area, the Research Triangle uh, area. And so these pregnancy support centers, they were springing up all over the place in the early 1980s. Even, even so, it's still it's such a it's such a spurious, ridiculous argument when you actually consider the, the fundamental question, which is the which is the religious question as to when does life begin? Because the idea that somehow the alternative would be, well, if you're for this person's life, well, then you are responsible for their entire um, upbringing and well-being, or we'll just kill them. Like that's that's the alternative that we're looking at, which is a, you know, which is such a dark and cynical argument. Now, of course, I think that there is something to be said for people who say we don't care about the poor and the needy, and therefore, and we're also uh, pro-life. Um, you know, I think there's a disconnect there. Uh, but I still, I think that I don't, I don't hear that person, very much. I don't care you know, about the poor and needy. Well, and if you're involved, and if you attend a Christian church, uh, then you are involved in, you know, outreach and mission to the poor and the needy, uh, the imprisoned. I mean, this is what we're in, commanded to do. I mean, the problem is many people who aren't Christians consider taxing, taxation and government intervention to be a form of tithing um, and sort of uh, social outreach, which is not a Christian idea at all. Anyway, we don't need to get on that. But but I just think that the argument itself, I mean, if we look at the where, where the it, it's, it's a misplaced where the, the point of contention is, because if we're talking about whether or not we need to be uh, care about uh, policies, programs, and and actions that alleviate the um, the you know extreme poverty and suffering and, and all these things. Well, that's a that's a conversation. And and if I somehow 
fall uh, liable to the actual judgment that I'm somehow indifferent or don't care about that, well, then that's something that I need to be brought up on. But that's a different argument than whether or not it should be legal to kill a, a human being in the womb. And that's the point where um, that's what's so clarifying about abortion. I think that's why it was such a um, it was and remains such a, a watershed question in the my, heart and minds of, of people, because um, whatever else you want to say about what happens to this human being after it's born, whether or not it is a person in the womb is the question. And when that person, when it becomes a person is is debatable only in a, an abstract sense, because at the moment of conception, all of the DNA, all of the the Aristotelian potential of life exists right there at that moment. And so, um, you know, people have have split hairs over various trimesters and weeks and all these various things. But those are all, you know, th those are arguments uh, that, that aren't going to ultimately hold up to the fundamental challenge, which is that if you say it's a life at any point in the womb, well, then it's a life at every point in the womb. And in which case, so like, for instance, what we profess in our ordination um, uh, canons in ACNA is that we, we protect life from conception to natural death. That's what we, we profess. And so, you know, I think that's why we see it to be such a uh, clarifying moment in the life of the church and in the life of the culture, for that matter, because with the increasing um, ability to see, I mean, we actually have videos of when conception Occurs. And I don't know if you've seen these, it's, they're, they're unbelievable, you know, the, the sort of the flash of light and the, when the egg is fertilized and you have this, you have people, uh, you know, increasingly who have fertilized eggs. I mean, like we've talked about this before, but part of our um, fertility process involved um, all of the medical interventions. Um, and we were very careful about how we proceeded along these lines because the, the wild, wild west of reproductive um, sort of care, as they call it, is quite frightening if there's no um, Christian limitations on, you know, people creating and, and you know, just thousands of embryos that they don't, um, that are, are thankfully some are being frozen and put up for adoption, but many aren't. But the point is, is that, you know, people know that they have children now that were visible at two cells, you know, visible at four cells. I mean, I got in an argument with someone once about the, the quote unquote, uh, or, or the, the specific time when abortion should be legal. And I said, well, I've seen my daughter, you know, at two cells. So, you know, that's a very small child to be sure, but um, we're not, you know, and it got heated pretty fast. We did back away, but nevertheless, you know, but this is why it's such a, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's the, the, the dividing line of our, of our lifetimes. I mean, I remember I was I'm a little younger than you, Mark, um, not much, but um, when I was in high school in, you know, in sort of the early nineties, we had these, these discussions where the teacher, you know, Western civilization would realize that this was a contentious issue and we'd have to stand in the classroom, you know, do you, are you for it? Go to all oh, totally against it, go all the way to the right. If you're totally for it, go all the way left. And if you're somewhere in the middle, stand, and then we would have a discussions and people would move their places. And I was always um, at the far. Uh, <laughs> Pressed up against <laughs> was, the wall. <laughs> well, my parents were very much. I remember as a young child going to the Louisiana Baton Rouge March for Life. Marches in downtown Baton Rouge with my parents. Heartbeat uh, Memorial for the Unborn. You know, my dad uh, and people in our church would wear the little baby feet. Uh, you know, these little gold baby feet that represented the, the, the size of the aborted fetus, um, these little pins and buttons it was very harrowing and terrifying concept for me as a child. I actually preached about, I uh, mentioned this in a sermon this past Sunday, 
that, um, you know, to have lived, to have grown up under the specter of this possibility to know that there were people out there who would callously and wantonly supported this, not only not only as what Bill Clinton would say, safe, legal and rare, but actually were, were vehemently um, and sort of rapidly uh, for this procedure at any time uh, up until birth. And even as we see in some cases, you know, famously Peter Singer and some of the more consistent atheists, you know, even after birth, you know, people say, well, what's the deal with having a, you know, if the, if the question is viability, well, then, you know, uh, a child can't feed itself for a long time. And so if that's really what the question is, then, you know, the consistent atheist would say, well, until the child, you know, then, of course, you take it to the end until the child gets his own job and moves out of the house. You know, they're not really viable. So, like, at what point does this end? I mean, it's it's ridiculous. It's a ridiculous argument for the Christian to make at any point, no matter how difficult the, can, the, the circumstances are, because we're talking about a human life, you know, human life. Um, and we all know human lives that have been brought into the world in circumstances that we um, that that breaks our hearts, that, that causes you know Jesus to go to the cross. I mean, we know this: people born in wartime, people born in extreme poverty, people born with with physical uh, difficulties that are unimaginable. And yet, we across the board and throughout all time have said these are people worthy of protection, dignity, and help. And if we can get to them, we will help them. I mean, like I've mentioned this in the sermon too, Christians are the ones that we, we built leper colonies, for goodness sakes. You know, I mean, we, we built the orphanages. Like we built the halfway houses for people that are addicted to things. We are the people who, um, you know, Mother Teresa is the one who lived her life in the slums of Calcutta. Now, not everyone's, you know, um, so convicted or called, but many have been and will continue to be. And that's that's our profession to the world. You know, Hebrews one, we believe by faith that he created things out of nothing. That's what we believe. And we believe that this is his his continual speech. Let there be life when an egg, uh, when a when an embryo is created. And we will defend that until he comes again. Yeah, to use an experience I had when I was in my 20s, I was at a swimming hole in, in North Carolina and there's a lot of families around. And I noticed this girl had gotten caught current in the river current and she was obviously panicking and so i just i was in the right not bragging but i was just in the right place at the right time i didn't have to do any special swimming i just went over and picked her up and put her on a rock and told her hey i need to watch out for that current there and uh, that was the end of that now what if in the middle of that i would have thought you know goodness if I save this girl's life, you know, then I need to be responsible for taking care of her the rest of her life. And well, okay, I think I'm just going to let her go down in the current and drown, you know, no, that'd be ridiculous. Okay. So there's, but the flip side, like what you also said, JD, is that yes, we Christians, we are to be people of compassion that, that help people at all stages of life. And could we do a better job of that? Well, of course, but, have we been doing a pretty impressive job? Well, there's more, far more pregnancy support centers in the U.S. than, the, than there are abortion clinics. And I think that's speaks Amen. I remember a formative experience I had for reflecting. We, um, uh, we hosted a young man named Kenny who had Down syndrome as part of the uh, Special Olympics. Um, and he lived with us for a month, it felt like a month, but, you know, child time, it might have been two days. I'm not really sure. But it was long enough to have fallen in love with this guy and to go watch him swim. And we took him to the USS Kid, which is the battleship. You know, we bought all the 
you know, Navy hats and we took him to the top of the state capitol and did all the things. And, you know, that that experience impressed upon me the the value and dignity of, of people with Down syndrome, you know, as a small child. And then as you get older, you realize that this is one of the primary arguments, um, you know, that people make from a pro-abortion side is that, well, this child will be born with difficulties like, for instance, you know, God forbid, Down syndrome. And I always remember hearing that. And I couldn't, of course, the moment that you hear Down syndrome, if you know someone with Downs, you, you immediately think of this person. And I said, well, you know, I'd, I'd always keep pushing back and say, well, you know, I met people with, with, with quote unquote valuable lives. I mean, these are incredible, terrible ways to speak about human beings. But nevertheless, this is our, this is the calculus we're making and would be pushing back and saying, you know, but you just have to get back to the, what you're actually saying is that this person who we met, who we housed, who we loved, who we, you know, stayed in touch with would be better off dead, like not to have existed. That's your, that's your argument. Like that's just, you go ahead and say that out loud, you know, say that out loud and, and you live with the consequences of a person being a, being a person who wants to live in a world where what you just said is, is not only true, but valued. And then I will just back away from you slowly. I mean, that's how, that's the sort of conversation we're, we're having. Um, yeah. Because, you know, it's interesting. We were in, we were in Europe uh, when I was doing my doctorate. And um, I think I've said this before, but, but it bears repeating in this instance. When we met someone, there were so many people, or there's so many Down syndrome cases that are aborted, uh, at least where we were in Germany, and in Austria, that when we met a Down syndrome person, it was all, well, it, to my experience, it was 100% the case that they were the child of an American expat working abroad, um, who happened to be a, you know, a, a Christian. I mean, we met him in the context of a church, but it was without exception. We met like four Down syndrome people when we were over there in six years working in various churches, and they were all the children of, um, of Americans who had, who had brought them over with them. And it was uh, because... I mean, I don't know the statistics off the top of my head, but it's something in the neighborhood of 95, if not higher percent of children diagnosed with Downs are um, aborted. And, you know, that's that's a moral reality that not only affects that child, obviously, but then reverberates down through the culture and um, and creates a, a, a very dark place to live, a very um, cynical and hopeless civilization, uh, if you can even call it that, uh, something that, that considers human life to be so malleable and disposable. And, you know, and, and we see the fruit of that or the lack thereof. We see the, the rise in depression and despair and nihilism and hopelessness and people, you know, we see the fruit of having been raised and cultivated in a, well, what they call the culture of death. I think that's rightly so. I mean, that's not just a scare tactic. That's what we have been raised in. And thankfully, our children will have the opportunity uh, by this overturning of this decision to, at the very least, get back into the argument, get back into the fight and make the case for uh, why we should value life from natural conception till, I mean, till death, from uh, conception to natural death. Yeah. And back in the early 80s, Francis Schaeffer and C. Everett Coop warned yeah. that the culture of death would not stop with just abortion. I mean, of course, it's abortion enough as it is, but that would, it would spread. And they're considered being alarmist. But you read their book, Whatever Happened to the Human That's Race, right. surprising how many things have already become true. <laughs> I used that book in like a senior, when I was in college, like in one, some class as a senior. And I think I got like a C minus or something because it was, <laughs> I was just quoting uh, alternatively Francis Schaefer in the Bible and some sociology religion class. And that was, um, 
a bridge too far. But, um, you know, what's interesting, back to the question of uh, viability and sort of the quote-unquote quality of life, you can see the flip side of this argument very clearly in what we call elder care. You know, if, if the argument literally is that in order to validate someone someone's existence, they have to prove, you have to be able to prove that they're quality of life and that their worth um, to the cost will somehow be, you know, that won't be too, too extreme. Well, then of course you could start looking at people at whatever age and say, well, now, wait a minute, like what's the rest of their life going to look like? I mean, their organs, you know, and a healthy person could be a lot better used than um, in this own body and so on and so forth. And that's part of what Francis Schaeffer and Cooper arguing is that if we don't value um, at the beginning, we're not going to value at any point, but particularly at the end. Now, I'm not suggesting that we just keep everyone alive, you know, like C.S. Lewis pointed out in that hideous strength, just for the sake of living, you know, that there is a, the Christian is not ultimately af- afraid of, of death this side of heaven. But nevertheless, you can see how that argument would very quickly devolve into, well, these people can afford for their quality of life to be maintained. So therefore, we can sort of, you know, dispose of them just as easily as we could those people um, that we had aborted for the same reasons. And this is how the logic of what they would call the culture of death permeates from from death, from conception to natural death. And we are pushing back on that, pushing back with a with a with a vengeance. As you describe it, I mean, as you said, it's so dark and nihilistic. It makes sense for the people who have been fighting against it for longer, but even just this legislation for 50 years to have some sort of celebratory reaction. And one of the things that we're being told, um, even by some Christian outlets, notably the Gospel Coalition this week, is that now's not the time for celebration. Um, now's the time to get to work. And I feel like I say this line every week on the show, not to reopen the winsomeness dialogue, but um, my, my question to you guys is, is it ever okay to celebrate something like this? Can we rejoice when we believe that something good, a moral good has been done? I mean, absolutely. I mean, I was, I was actually shamed into mentioning, not shamed. I was, I was encouraged to uh, reference this, at least in passing, in a recent sermon I gave by a dear friend of mine who's a um, elder at a, at a local Baptist church, but we've become close. And he said, would you have wanted to go through the uh, emancipation proclamation with that, that experience as a Christian preacher without having referenced it as a, as a positive good? It's like, well, that's, that's, how, that's what we've just seen. And I, and I think that that's the equivalent, is that we're watching something that uh, people, well, not unlike the emancipation proclamation, Christian people, um, even in the midst of disagreement, have been advocating for, lobbying for, agitating all of the various things. And when it was finally settled that, you know, it was no longer be allowed to have um, legally owned slaves in America, well, there was much rejoicing, not across the board, but amongst those who had been fighting for it. Well, similarly speaking, I have known that there have been, quote unquote, Christians disagreeing with my position, pro-life position, since I can remember. And nevertheless, like I have never, um, by God's grace, uh, deviated from uh, supporting politicians, making arguments, getting into difficult conversations at whatever case and whatever capacity it's been um, against the nuance and against the supposed middle ground in this question. And the fact that it has been returned um, to the states 
and people like me um, and, and many others who have been prayerful and active in the hopes that they would see this come to fruition, of course, can celebrate. And of course, doesn't mean we, you know, have contempt for our enemies or we lord over the, the people affected by this or any, any non-Christian idea. But the fact that you could have a, you know, I think the North, North American Anglican said, you know, a, a, you know, a service for praise and thanksgiving that God in his providence has allowed um, this evil to at least be um, to be uh, ratcheted down and returned back to a, a question as opposed to a fiat um, is a wonderful day of celebration among uh, Christian people. And so I, I, I think that um, whoever is advocating that is exposing more about their indifference or their um, misunderstanding of the of the um, of, of the stakes um, and, and really probably acknowledging that they don't fully believe that an embryo at conception is, is worthy of the same rights and protections as a, as a quote unquote, a full grown human. They're, they're revealing that more than anything else when they advocate something along the lines of you can't be joyful or celebrate that something like this has been overturned. I can't, I can't disagree with that. <laughs> <laughs> It's, it's been, it's been, I mean, again, I, I think, I think these are all this, this time that we're living in is so, is so exciting. And, and I talk about this in my congregation all the time, not that I enjoy, which might be a shock, but I don't enjoy arguments or getting into conflicts or, or being um, certainly don't, I don't enjoy being, being yelled at or disagreed with, but nevertheless, the, the stakes and the, the clarity and the, division between belief and unbelief, between Christian profession and agnostic doubt, and all of the various things that the Bible clearly lays out will be the, the division, you know, the binary between those who, who profess the, cre- the creator and those who worship the creature are as clear in, in this time in our life as I've ever experienced. You know, we're no longer talking about what Christian radio uh, the band is good for youth group kids to listen to or not. You know, we're talking about whether or not we should, how we deal with the fact that half of our new youth group kids are wondering whether or not the, the body they've quote unquote been assigned is the one that they want to remain in. Like, that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about the surprising nudity in Captain Ron, which is an amazing movie, but for that uh, nudity. And so, you know, you have to watch watch out when you're going through a nostalgic watch with your children in the 80s. You got to be careful. But how many a youth minister has unwittingly shown Captain Ron to their youth? Sure, you're like me. For me, it was Teen Wolf. I thought, yeah, Teen Wolf has got to be fine. And all of a sudden there's full frontal nudity in Teen Wolf. What are we doing to our kids? That's right. Doc Hollywood, all these movies like that's what we were worried about. And so we were not worried about the right things, it turns out, because yeah. what we should have been we should have been preparing them for is when unbelief creeps at your door and wants to reorder your body for the sake of uh, it's a godless ideology like you need to be prepared for that. Um, Captain Ron's a pretty good movie, you know, but at any rate. And I think that's where but that's where we get to live, because the 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 ravages, you know, I was talking about this the other day with someone that the. The, the ravages of an actual world under wrath, you know, what Paul talks about people being given over to themselves. You know, there was a, I think, I think Ross Douthat called it, but somebody recently said that the 20th century in America, at least mid, mid-century America, lived in what they called um, uh, genteel Christendom, something I think it was, or, or it was something basically like the, 
support structures and kind of the safety net of a genuine, sort of a general Christian consensus, you know, were still there. And so people, even if you were super radical, you know, you were like the, you know, come on, baby, light my fire. You know, that was like, uh, you know, we can't get much higher. That was like a shocking thing for the doors to sing. Right. You know, now it's like, we talked about, you know, that WAP song or whatever it is, you know, that was was a little bit, of course, you know, magnitudes greater, but we're living. So you could grow up and be a sort of quote unquote radical in a world that was still protecting you from the actual excesses of your uh, libido and your unbelief gone wild. Well, now those, those restraints have been all but removed and we're watching not just the, the, uh, the reality of it, but we're, we're, we're living in the wreckage of it. And so the people that are returning to church um, that I've seen, you know, are, are evincing scars and battle wounds of a culture that when I was in high school, I could hardly, couldn't even imagined could have existed, you know, uh, relationship problems that they've had, you know, permutations of various um, intimate, you know, constellations that are, you know, would make the Marquis de Sade blush, you know, things like this. I mean, you know, surgeries and failed marriages and, and prison records and all the things, you know, that come from, from walking a prodigal road. And yet here we stand continuing to welcome them back, continuing to pray, offer hope of healing, offer mercy, forgiveness, and peace. And it's been painful to hear some of these stories, you know, to hear, you know, 30 people in their mid thirties talk about their first and second marriages, you know, I mean, this is, this is unbelievable. And, and, and some of the things they've gone through and yet to, to hear about those in the context of a church and to um, watch the Lord restore and redeem, you know, the years the locusts have eaten has been incredibly encouraging for me. And conversely, or counterintuitively, faith building, you know, the fact that you're watching the Bible uh, be defended and clarified in real time, both its negative judgment and its positive hope is, um, has, has been well, it's, it's made me a stronger Christian. It's made me a, a, a man of deeper faith. And I am, you know, despite the darkness, I've been grateful that the light has been brighter and brighter and the darkness will not overcome it. And it's, um, it's a great joy to be called to minister at such a time as this. Well, speaking of being called to minister, uh, J.D., you referenced earlier the ordination canons of the ACNA. I actually went ahead and pulled them up while you were talking and it's really a stark statement this is canon 8 section 3 and it says clearly and unambiguously that god not and not man is the creator of human life the unjustified taking of life is sinful therefore all members and clergy are called to promote and respect the sanctity of every human life from conception to natural death period that's members the entire, and clergy. That's the entire section. I love it. And, and so we serve a church that has codified this faithful stance. And um, we were talking earlier about sort of appropriate reactions. And it seems like our church has laid out for us what an appropriate uh, view and an appropriate reaction is. And um, I'm, I'm for one, um, I know that you don't technically attend an ACNA church. You're in an REC church, Mark, but that's a special jurisdiction of the, of the ACNA. So we're all. Which has its own seminary and a good one. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And chaplains, well-trained chaplains. (laughs) That's an inside joke for our new listener. Uh, Um, I've gone to cram. I've 
have a certificate from Cramner House, and that's a very good. There we go. But yeah, I, I think uh, ACNA has re responded to this issue very well. And while we're on the subject, I think I have to give, and I hope our listener is, is sitting down, I have to give um, credit to where credit is due. Um, in the past, I've been very critical of Tish Harrison Warren of some of the things she has written in the area of, uh, uh, of the abortion issue, and, and those things still stand. But her latest column for the New York Times was really excellent. And in the basic gist of her column is that this argument of bodily autonomy, you know, my body, my choice, it just doesn't stand because you cannot have bodily autonomy be an absolute. I mean, you just get... I mean, just if you think it through, as she did in her column, it's society is just an awful, horrible place to live. If if people have that attitude that, well, I can do what I want with my body, no matter how it affects anybody else. And she she debunked that well. So I got to I got to give kudos to, to Tish Warren for her uh, latest column in The New York Times. Yeah. I never thought I'd be saying anything good about a column in The New York Times. <laughs> I doubt that gets a good gets it right every now and then, but that's yeah, well said, Mark. And I think Nick, you know, the the I mean, Tish is a minister in our church, and um, you know, she's beholden as we are. And now, as it turns out, I was not aware. I would have been more forceful in my pronouncements uh, that that extended to Great. the membership more, too. More forceful <laughs> pronouncements. Well, I mentioned I mentioned in a sermon like back when the Dobbs case was leaked, I mentioned that this was this was a non-negotiable for your ordained clergy. Um, and I didn't realize that it was actually part of the uh, church's uh, membership, um, you know, expectation also, which which will provide for some good conversation fodder going forth. Um, but I think, you know, I, I can't help but, but be not only proud, but encouraged and, and feel a sense, as we've talked about before, of protection from our um, over shepherds, as it were, our bishops. And I'm reminded of watching the picture of, I think, I know it's Archbishop Foley is there, and I think it's Bishop uh, Dobbs, and there's a handful of other bishops that were always pictured at the March for Life. You know, they would have the staging um, uh, ground at the Paul's Church Anglican there, and then they would go march, you know, in the stark contrast between, like, the church we came from, Nick, where many of our bishops would be marching with the, you know, various pride parades and other sorts of things versus our bishops marching at this March for Life. And I think that pretty much you could make a meme, you know, juxtaposing those two uh, pictures and say everything that you needed to say about the various churches that we have been called to serve and their differences of opinions on all sorts of, or I say convictions on all sorts of things. Yes. So all, you may um, out there, you've just have been given a really good suggestion. So <laughs> that's right. The meme makers, whatever, whoever, wherever the meme makers are, uh, go ahead and make that meme. But it's, um, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a joy and it's a, it's, it's a, it's, it's a challenge, of course, but this clarifying, as I said before, that, that has, that has uh, produced the ACNA, you know, it was another um, seminal watershed event is what we were born out of when they were ordaining, um, you know, non-celibate uh, married uh, homosexual bishop in the Episcopal church. That was finally all the nuance and all of the um, sort of conversation and all of the discussion and dialogue, you know, all of that that took place for decades finally came to a head and to a point where it was an either or, either you agree with this decision and you support it and you work in within a church that, that blesses it or not, you know? And so we, we've been here before, and this is one of those seminal moments where we finally get to see 
um, where all the dialogue and all the conversation, the nuance and the hand wringing and the prayers and all of the various things that are necessary part of this, you know, our uh, exercise in ordered liberty, as it's called, you know, what Os Guinness calls the great American experiment. I mean, we're part of that, even as the church, you know, and this is where we've come to yet another one of these inflection points where we've been brought up over decades to this point, And now the conversation will uh, revolve around the great either or, which has always been at the heart of this question, which is whether or not by faith you profess what God has said to be true in his word. And in the womb, my mother, you know, I knew the hairs on your head. You knit me together in my mother's womb that there is a dignity to life as it as it at its conception because of God's uh, ordaining decree or or not. And that will be uh, a finalized, uh, finally work itself out as a Christian division, um, I believe. I think it always has been. Um, I think Christian people have always had been on the defensive when they try to argue for anything other than a wholesale rejection of abortion. And there's always hand-wringing and there's nuance and there's all the various things. And I'm sympathetic to some of the arguments, or at least the way that people have come to these arguments, you know, these the very difficult questions to address. But when we begin to think through them, as we have done our entire adult lives, and now we will have the opportunity to help continue to lead people through what Francis Schaeffer says, the logical end of their false assumptions. Well, then I think by God's grace, we will see more and more people be pro-life from, from conception to natural death, that meaning that they will, be, can, they will be more empathetic to the plight of the people who are born into extreme poverty in places of need and want in ways that Christians have always been, but perhaps they and themselves never thought about because it was seemed more convenient, more logical to let this person be aborted than to bring them up in this world. And all of the questions that come with this, we will be able to help continue to lead people through and thankfully not just save these babies, but actually hopefully watch the leaven of life permeate the culture again and bring people to a sense of deeper hope and comfort and peace in the midst of this sinful world in a way that uh, if you live in a place where you have callously decided that it's better for someone to die than to face the challenges of a life that you could help them overcome, well, um, the alternative to that is, a well, nothing short of the kingdom of God for righteousness, peace, and joy reign, and we will continue to watch um, the gates of hell um, be thwarted against um, God and his church. And so I'm excited. I think this is a a momentous time to be alive and a real opportunity for the church. And I'm grateful that I am. Um, the Lord has called us to, as I said before, to be, be leaders in his church um, at this time. Well, that's a good word, JD. We are all, I think on the same page and saying the same prayers and may, may it be on earth as it is in heaven. That's our, our prayer every day. Well, as we wrap up here, just a, a word for the good of the order, as they say, J.D., you've had your last Sunday at Christ Church Anglican there in Mount Pleasant. You are in the mountains in sort of like this transition time. How's it going? Are you excited? How, how are you feeling? Yeah, we're we're excited. We're um, going to be overlapping with the outgoing retiring rector, Greg Kranz, who's a friend, been a friend of mine for for years now, um, who has had a wonderful 30 plus year uh, run at St. Luke's Hilton Head. I'll be overlapping with him from August 1st until his retirement uh, Labor Day. And then I'll be uh, taking the reins. So pray for us, pray for transition. I would appreciate that. Um, we're excited 
um, humbled and excited and grateful for this opportunity. And, and if anyone's interested, we will, by God's grace, have the opportunity to be hiring an associate. So if, you, um, if, if you've liked what you've heard here, that's right, if you, then, <laughs> then, um, but if you know anyone, dear listener, who uh, may want to come serve um, uh, in, Hilton, in Hilton Head in a wonderful diocese and a, and a faithful and uh, courageous church and all of the various things, then um, reach out because we'd love to... Um, we love to, uh, well, trust the Lord will bring just the right person to help um, serve in his vineyard down there in Hilton Head. So yeah. we'll, we'll watch the applications rain down like <laughs> yeah, manna right. from heaven. Is the internet spiking right now? <laughs> Is this what's happening? There's been a massive, people are redoing their LinkedIn. Resume, resume, open, speak. open my resume. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we do appreciate you, our listener, for listening to Stand Firm this week. If you want to keep the conversation going, you can be in touch with us, rate and review the podcast on iTunes, send us an email at mailbag at standfirminfaith.com, or you can join the Anglicans for the Gospel Facebook group. Thanks also to JD and a special thank you to Mark Marshall. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Nick Lannon, and Lord willing, we'll be back in some configuration next week. Until then, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm. 